I don't care what your passion is in life or what it is that you envision that you want to do. There's one thing in this world that can help supply and fund it all. And that's money, right? And the more time and energy we spend on understanding how money works, how it's moved to the system, really where it gets its value from, all of these things are just gonna make it more probable that we get to spend our time and energy doing the things that we like. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Michael Glasby. Michael is a CFO, an expert in real estate, a highly experienced real estate investor, and a military veteran. Today, you're going to learn all about the importance of understanding the numbers in your real estate investments. We learn about Michael's investment career, starting as a real estate investor, how he got started while he was in the military, how he scaled a pretty considerable personal portfolio, some key lessons that he learned along the way, and how he helps clients today improve the financial performance in their real estate investments. We dig a bit into one case in particular of some flippers who were performing quite a few flips per year, but were they really netting positive at the end of the year? Well, we're going to dig into that today and so much more. At the end of the day, you have to make money from your real estate investments, and that boils down to understanding the numbers. That's what we're digging into today with Michael Glasby. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Michael Glasby. Let's go. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. You have a fascinating background in the financial space and real estate, really incredible. Can you tell us about yourself and what you've done? And then we'll talk a bit about what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. To share a little bit about my background, I actually started my professional career in the military. Coming out of college, I needed to find a way to pay for college. I decided to join the military. And then being young and energetic, I decided, hey, I'm going to go all in. And I decided to test myself with special forces selection, right? Saying, hey, can I cut it? And luckily enough, I was blessed enough to actually make it through that whole cycle. It's a two-year training process before you actually can become a special forces uh, soldier. And I ended up spending almost a decade in the military doing that. And we often tend to glorify things like war and combat, especially as young men. And the reality of it really started to sink in on me about halfway through my, my time in service. And I decided I needed to find something else. And I was already owned a home at that time, right? I had to use my VA loan. It was great. No money down. I lived in this home and I was renting out the spare bedrooms to some other single soldiers. They're just friends of mine. And come to find out, that's actually called house hacking. Well, as soon as I figured that out, it was off to the races. You know, I just started being obsessed, calling myself a real estate investor, doing everything I can, wholesales, so forth and so on. And over a short period of time, that was able to scale to over 134 unit portfolio. And I also founded a agency, co-founded a, a team of agents that focused on investors that have now grown over to 100 agents in several different markets. 
And I got a lot of other experiences to include being able to operate as a CFO for a small private equity firm, working in commercial lending, which all kind of led me to where I'm at today, where I offer fractional CFO services for small businesses and ideally within that real estate niche, real estate professionals and investors. Awesome. Awesome. And you teach real estate investors how to run their real estate like a business, which is so critical. I'd love to dig into how you scaled your portfolio to the point where you said, I think 134, 137 doors, quite a few that a lot of folks, you know, kind of can't picture having that many, the capital, the time management, everything around it. Can you walk us through like scaling that up and how you achieved that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the beginning, everything, my entire mindset was about how quickly can we accumulate the doors? And I think that's maybe an often misconception with most real estate investors is, oh, I want to scale. How quickly can I scale? And what ended up happening was I scaled fairly quickly. And then the reality of it really set in and says, oh, my foundation wasn't actually set. I wasn't actually treating this like a real business. And when that comes, just like you mentioned, time commitment, right? How do we leverage time? And and yes, I've always used property managers. I tried self-managing for a fraction of the time. It just, I was not cut out for it. So bringing in property managers is important. Bringing in an accounting team is important, right? And, and really understanding how to look at it. And as we scaled, I also realized that capital was an issue. So I got real creative on that side. I, I've done subject tos, lease options, syndication, loan assumptions, wraparound mortgages, rent to all, lease all, like all of these different things, including bringing in additional partners as well. And that's that, that at least helped me elevate and scale to the level. And even after I scaled, I just recently actually sold over half of my portfolio. And the kicker was I sold over half, but I increased my profitability because I started looking at it, you know, like a real business. Nice. So you sold the, sold the bad ones, sold the dogs and kept the profitable ones. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I want to just dive into, you know, what are investors doing wrong in terms of managing their portfolios, looking at the finances, running it like a job rather than like a business. I mean, there's so much there. We could start at the top, but what are the top things you see people doing wrong? And I assume that you, you know, sounds like you figured some of these out firsthand, right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things is as real estate investors, we tend to look deal to deal, right? This deal is going to yield an IRR of 15%. This deal is going to produce a cash flow of X amount. And all of that's fine and dandy, but we have to understand that the, the deal for us as real estate investors, that is our product, right? And so if we look at a large company, when they sell a product, let's just call it a car manufacturer company. Great. When they sell a car, they're going to make a profit off that car, but whatever that profit is off the car has to be used to operate the rest of the business. So include salaries, any type of systems overhead, insurance policies, leases, everything else. Most investors, when they're starting off, they're only looking deal to deal. Oh, I'm going to make a 20% or 25% return or whatever it is. And they think, hey, I'm really profitable. Well, I actually had a client of mine. They did over 40 40 flips last year. And then they brought me on this year to help kind of look at their books. And come to find out, they actually lost $90,000, right? When we actually looked at their books. So understanding, having that conversation, hey, we have to look beyond the flip or beyond the deal and realize that the profit of a deal is really only the gross profit of the company because we still have other expenses to come out and we can talk about that in a little bit. So that, that, that really is one of the biggest ones. And the second one is understanding that you don't have to do everything. You really don't. 
And as CEOs, if you will, we try to be chief everything officers and we're wearing all the hats across the board and we don't want to hire an expert. We don't want to pay the salary for somebody to come in. And when in reality, all we should strive to not to be the smartest person in the room. We need people to help us elevate and let us scale. So I would say those are the, the two most common things I see for real estate investors, especially when they're at the beginning of their journey, that's preventing them to actually treating it like a real business. Interesting. So a few fascinating examples there. So the maybe do or don't want to pick on that particular set of folks that lost money <laughs> flipping 40 houses, but there, there is an important lesson in there, right? They're going deal to deal, but they're not looking at the overall profitability of the business. But, but why is that? Why aren't they seeing the overall profitability of the business and, and making that mistake in the first place? Is it just because they want to just keep doing deals? How can they revise their thinking and turn it into a profitable business? And that's a great question. And so I, I feel like that's a two-part response. The, what the, the way they got distracted, right. And, and they stopped kind of seeing the profitability of the company. The first way was because they lost sight of the overall goal. When I asked them after the fact, how they felt, they were like, oh, we're ready to throw in the town. We're ready to be done. And when you really broke that down, they started the company as a means to an end, as many real estate investors do. Hey, I want to build this passive portfolio of this company where I can do what I want with who I want, when I want type of style. And because they got captivated by that paycheck, Right then, they started focusing less on taking the the profits and putting it into passive investments. They started saying, "Okay, well, we need more of these, and if we get more of these, then we can." Right, that whole that old adage of, oh, "I'll do more now so I can enjoy life later," instead of finding a way to enjoy life throughout the journey. So that was a piece of it. But the second part was just their inexperience in understanding how to read a financial statement. Right, and so when we look at uh, commercial real estate, especially. Everything we look at is based on that NOI or some sort of income statement. Well, in reality, the income statement is exactly how a business is broken down. So all we have to do is take the same concepts within, uh, with an income statement that we'll look at for a property, apply that to the business, make sure all of the expenses are in there, and then understand how do we read that to increase the NOI. And there's some other metrics in there that are really important to talk about the efficiency of the company. But once we understand what the financial statements are saying, well, then making decisions on whether to improve it or how to improve it become a lot clearer. So, okay. So, but obtaining those financial statements for the company or generating them, obviously that's what you specialize in and in, in helping folks that reach the scale where they can utilize someone like yourself. But say for the newer investor who's just doing a few deals a year, maybe they don't feel like they're quite ready to hire somebody to handle those things. Is that something that you know, you can do it like a kind of a rudimentary version in QuickBooks or what yes. do you recommend for the person kind of scaling? Yeah. Everybody across the board, I don't care if they're brand new or if they're uh, super seasoned, they should have their books in order, right? So we talk about QuickBooks. It's a software for bookkeeping. We got to have bookkeeping, period. And I don't care if it's just a couple of line items in there. We need to have bookkeeping because understanding how to read the financial statement is the baseline of it all. Right. Now, once you learn how to read it and understand it, if maybe you don't know what to implement next, well, that's where I can come in. Right. And I can really start to help really break it down to say, okay, what well, this is saying that this category of your marketing or this category of your operations or your fulfillment is lacking. We need to improve the efficiency here. But if you just have your basic fundamentals there, you can tell at least if you're making money or if you're losing money. 
which is really the basis of it all. And before you hire somebody out, you want to make sure that you're making money and you can afford it, right? And things like that. So having books, period, and understanding just how to read the financial statement is, is extremely fundamental, no matter what level of experience you're at. Interesting. So I think the the example of flipping is particularly difficult or maybe maybe interesting in this case. I'm not a huge fan of flipping in general, especially for passive income, not tax right. advantage. A lot of people don't treat it like a real estate investment and it you know, it's kind of not, but it's such a lumpy cash flow, you know, cuz you don't make any money until you sell the property at the end and hopefully right. you net out and then you go do another one. Does that is is that really the main issue in that particular example like because of the lumpiness of the cash flow can can like rental property owners generally have a better opportunity to track this profitability. You see where I'm going with that? Is this like yeah. just the nature of flipping? Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great point. And so I've seen it poorly managed across the board, no matter what the investment strategy is, even with uh, buy and hold with rental properties. Now, the beautiful thing about rental properties is there's a lot less volatility in the in the cash flow, right? If there is a cash flow issue, it could be due to primarily vacancy or some large capital expenditure, right? And and there's a key distinction between cash flow and profitability that we just need to be aware of in those rental companies, right? So although we make cash flow negative one month or two months, we still may be profitable overall. And, and so because it's less volatile, typically it's a little bit easier, but we still need to be aware of all of the additional costs. So if we're using third-party property management, that's fine. Third-party third party property management typically does a lot of the other minor tasks to include the the software program that they're using, you know, Appfolio, whatever the case is, and some of the repairs and, and things like that. But we can take that that property management report and kind of plug it in to QuickBooks, right? We don't necessarily need to recreate the wheel. But if we don't have a lot of those other tools, then we need to make sure that we're keeping very accurate books there as well. Because understanding how to read it, the concepts are the same on how to read financial statements. And it's just as important across the board. It might be just a little bit easier for a passive investment than it would be for an active investment. So where can folks go to start getting educated on how to read a financial statement, particularly in this in this realm? Because I, I feel like if you were to just Google how to read a financial statement, you're going to get something about looking at stocks and stocks or, you know, whatever is not yes. going to be specifically about real estate investing. 100%. Yeah, because an easy, you know, low-hanging fruit would be like investopedia.com. But if you go to investopedia, it's primarily about stocks, right? And other mm -hmm. equities and things of that nature. So the Small Business Administration, believe it or not, has a ton of resources and tools to teach small business owners how to read financial statements, how to find marketing, how to find grants, government grants that you can use within your company and things of that nature. So especially if you're just starting out or you're really just trying to get a, a fundamental understanding of how to read those finances, my recommendation would be go to the Small Business Administration, sba.gov. Interesting. Okay. So- I wonder about also, again, not to pick on the flipping too much, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, tax planning is a huge part of huge. all of our investing, but some folks might not know that flipping really gets whacked on taxes, short-term capital yes. gains, you're really getting hammered. Are you finding that flippers, are they adequately preparing for that big tax bill that's going to come around the corner or, or do they often get in trouble for that because they don't understand their cash flows and liabilities and all that. Yeah. So I find that most investors and business owners aren't properly preparing for taxes. The common thing that you'll see is, uh-oh, end of the year's done. I hope my tax bill isn't that high. 
right? That's the kind of like the mindset that they approach. When in reality, it's if we're doing proper tax strategy and planning, well, then we already have an idea of what our tax burden is going to look like. And we're implementing things now to lower that. Everything from all the beautiful Section 179, Augusta rule, you know, 1031 exchanges, all of these concepts we're putting into place so that we can lower that, that tax bracket. But to your point, many, many investors, now just flippers alone, it's almost an afterthought. And that would be an unpreferred way to approach it, right? We want to have a proactive way with our finances. And if we really think about this, I don't care what your passion is in life or what it is that you envision that you want to do. Call it hockey, giving back, charity, whatever the case is. There's one thing in this world that can help supply and fund it all. And that's money. Right. And the more time and energy we spend on understanding how money works, how it's moved to the system, really where it gets its value from, all of these things are just going to make it more uh, probable that we get to spend our time and energy doing the things that we like. And so tax strategy or basically any of these strategies that are proactive to teach us how to keep more of our hard earned money is the basis of it all as a business owner. Right. We don't want to keep paying Uncle Sam things or we're the ones working uh, you know, uh, 80 hours a week or whatever it is, we want to keep most of it. So how can, maybe you'll even disagree with the premise of this question, but how can we be mindful of financial statements and cash flows without being penny wise and pound foolish, if that makes mm -hmm. sense? If we're paying too much attention to the little things and we can miss the big things, or would you even disagree, would you even agree with the premise of that question. Should we be penny wise and the pounds will take care of themselves? What do you think? That's a great question. As business owners, we're good at whatever we're good at, right? Like you specifically are really good at one thing within your company. And if it's not accounting or bookkeeping, then you shouldn't be putting your, your time and energy on that. But we do need somebody to track those pins to be able to answer the questions when you ask, you know, what happened to the marketing budget? Where did this $1,500 go? Where did this $10,000 go? There should be somebody there to say, this is exactly where it went. So you can now make an informed decision. Now to that point, uh, I love asking this question because typically when I ask somebody, if you made a million dollars this year, is that a good year? For the most part, people would say yes. And if I follow up that question and say, okay, but you had to spend exactly a million dollars <laughs> in order to make a million dollars, is it still a good year? Answer is often no, right? You walk away with zero. And so what that reference is, is we're not necessarily tracking dollars because dollars will lie to you. What we're doing is we're tracking the dollars in relation to something else. So a big one that many people don't really consider is our profit margin, all right? So how many dollars are kept comparative to how many that we actually made? And so when we track that, let's just say our net profit margin is, is 10. So we made $1,000 we kept $100. Our net profit margin is 10%. Well, now, instead of us being penny-wise and tracking every dollar, we're tracking the margins. Did we stay at 10%? Did we drop from 10%? Did we increase to 20%? How can we maintain at 20%? Those become more higher-level questions about your operations and your efficiency that many business owners should be worried about, but they don't consider in the beginning. Okay. So within the last couple of years, depending on what state you're in and things like that, there have been huge increases in property taxes and insurance, particularly a lot of the Southeast. In your estimation, were 
were real estate investors really generally prepared for those increases? And if not, how could they have been prepared for increases in property taxes and insurance? Two things that are generally pretty well outside of our control. Absolutely. That's a great question. So when we look at the income statement or the balance sheet, there's a section called cost of sale or cost of goods sold. Essentially what this means is these are costs associated with producing our product. So when we talk about real estate, we need to pay property taxes. We need to pay insurance. So we don't have to treat that as a bottom line expense. We can treat that as a cost of sale. And so within the same vein, if we see that our Cost of goods sales, whatever we subtract, leads to our gross profit in the company. So we would want to look at our gross profit margin. If our gross profit margin says that we are keeping 80% of all top line income that we're making, we're keeping 80% to spend on the other expenses inside the company, well, that tells us that we got a little bit of wiggle room for all those increased things that we can't proceed. Because also what's going to happen? Cost of material is going to go up. Cost of labor is going to go up. These things are going to happen that are inevitable. So we have to then, once we see that profit margin change, right? If we think about this, cost of goods sold, that's an expense. We really can't control that. It goes up. In order for us to keep the same profit margin, what do we then have to do? We have to increase revenue. So therefore, if we're treating it like a business, we now see, hey, look, we can no longer support this increase in sale. So we have to relook at our pricing model. Maybe something's different here. Maybe we need to increase rents. Maybe we need to charge an additional fee, maybe a pet fee or another amenity that we can throw into our multifamily complex, right? And so this is the this is the power of really understanding how to read a financial statement because it starts to tell you what you can and can't do. So you offer fractional CFO services and there's probably a band in there somewhere if you base it on the scale of a company or revenues or whatever scale you want to base it on mm -hmm. where... Folks aren't ready for a fractional CFO of any kind. And then there's a band in there where it makes sense. And then above that, you probably have the scale for a full-time CFO, which you've been right. in the past. In your opinion, where is that band of appropriate real estate investing scale for a fractional CFO? Yeah, you want to be generating somewhere over that 100K in revenue at a minimum for a fractional CFO. Now there's going to be other opportunities if you're not producing that yet. You know, there's there's smaller programs or positions that you could use also to kind of fill in the gap. We talked about a bookkeeper. There's also something called a uh, a controller, a financial controller that you may be able to get fractionalized or something like that. And then once you start making over a hundred thousand in revenue, then you know the strategy can come into place of where can we start to increase our efficiency? Because what people really don't understand is when we want to scale a company. All we're doing is we're improving efficiency, period. Maybe it's on the sales side, maybe it's on the marketing side, maybe it's on the operations and fulfillment. We're just improving efficiency along the way and that's how we scale. And so it makes sense to kind of hire somebody at that point. To, to your point, when you really start generating some good revenue, you may want to bring in a full-time CFO. And luckily at that point in time with it being your company, you can negotiate salaries and things like that. But I think it's important for people to understand that the average, the average CFO, in the United States makes a salary of, take, take a guess, what do you think their average salary is? 125. Okay, it's $424,000 a year. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Many people aren't aware of that one, right? Now, mind you, that's the average. So that is taking in some of the larger corporations and the smaller corporations. What if you take Doesn't them mean out? that you have, yeah, you take them out, it'll probably be closer to about 150 to 200,000. 
All right. So it's still there, but you don't necessarily always need a full time if you have the proper fractional or something else to kind of fill in that gap. Yeah, no, that's a pretty big gap to or a pretty big jump to go straight to 400 or somewhere in the several hundred thousand dollar a year range. But, you know, yeah, and I always say, like, if if you pay you, let's say you pay five hundred thousand dollars a year, but they were to make they were able to make you one point five million. Well, then, you know, it's just an investment conversation at that point. And it's like, oh, you get it. You know, as investors, we're really priming ourselves to be great CEOs because CEOs, in all reality, they're just looking at the return on their investment of every decision they make, the right hire, the right marketing, whatever the case is. And so in that frame of mind, then it's like, oh, okay, would it make sense, you know, at the top, given there's enough money to actually spend on it and there's a good enough return, okay, then it makes sense to hire somebody. And that would be the same approach that you would consider for the fractional aspect as well. You want to make sure that it's a good return on your investment. Interesting. Okay. Yes. I, I've seen a lot of folks in in the space scale up and hit that point where they should be hiring folks full time. And some of them do, some of them don't. And it seems to me the ones that don't either stay at that range or kind of gradually taper off, you know, and, and aren't able to scale. Hey, maybe they don't want to scale their businesses beyond a certain, you know, size because right. they've set it up the way they want, but definitely see the advantage. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com Scroll down to the Stessa logo and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Michael, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's go. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment has to be the ver- the first property I ever bought, which wasn't even meant to be an investment. It was a VA loan, so I had no money down. I moved into the property. I actually got a check back. This was back when, you know, you could get paid <laughs> or reimbursed for some of your expenses. I actually got like $1,000 put in my pocket. And I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> and then I rented out the rooms uh, to several of my buddies. And so I was living there mortgage-free. And I lived that way for a couple of years. And like I mentioned, once I found out that that truly was a form of an investment, that's really what sparked everything else, right? The pure obsession of real estate, right? And so because of that choice, I think it is a pivotal part of where I am today. Awesome. I think making that first investment and then realizing that you already are a real estate investor, very powerful. A lot of folks getting started who haven't done a real estate investment yet, I think underestimate the value of just the identity of being a real estate investor and what it means. Absolutely. Sounds like that helped you a lot as well, beyond the, in addition to the uh, financial aspects of it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So many to choose from. I would say the worst one was one of my very early wholesale assignments. Long story short, I put a property under contract. I got deployed because I was still active duty. 
I attempted to hand it over to another wholesaler thinking that they were going to finish it up. And I even told the wholesaler, you can keep all of the proceeds. I wanted to take care of the family. Well, eight months later or so, I come back and I found out that the, the brother who was living there got uh, displaced. He ended up being homeless for a little bit. The property ended up getting foreclosed on because the wholesale assignment actually never went through. And, you know, I look back on it and hindsight being 2020, was there things I could do better? Yes. Were there parts that were kind of out of my control? Yes. But it was the worst investment because of the impact it had on the people in that, in that deal. And that is something that's always set with me to understand that real estate is a very impactful industry. And we have to be aware of all parties involved, not just us, not just our investors, but the tenants uh, or whoever else is on that other side of the table as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It can have a big impact on the people that live in the properties. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I'd have to say the most important is that it is okay to ask for help. It is okay. You know, especially in the military, there's this like bravado around, you know, especially in special operations where, no, we can do it ourselves. We don't ask for help. And I carried that with me for a very long time. And then I realized that there are so many people out there, to include yourself, that are just trying to add value to the community one way or another, right? And it, it's free, it's purposeful, it's meaningful. And, you know, sometimes I'm not a very religious man, but, you know, they say that, hey, God will bring you a blessing and it's your choice if you accept it or not. And when people are offering these things, it's okay to accept it. And so that was something that took a while for me to learn. But as soon as I did that, my business became uh, uh, much more fulfilling. My life became more abundant. And uh, I think that's just something that is misunderstood in the beginning. A lot of the times for small entrepreneurs, they think they have to do everything themselves, but it is perfectly fine to ask for help. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate you taking some time to share your knowledge with uh, myself and, and our listeners if folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? You guys can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Michael S. Glassby. You could also find me at MichaelSGlassby.com. Be sure to add the S. <laughs> yes. Be sure to add the us S. That other guy is not doing the name any yeah. honors, but you know we don't need to dive into that today. Well, thank you so much once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>